welcome to season three of the Media Careers Podcast. We're delighted to bring you more incredible industry guests who are working across the film and media industry. The Media Careers Podcast is delivered in partnership with Interfilm, supported by the BFI awarding National Lottery funding. Please don't forget to hit the little subscribe button so you can be kept up to date with all of the latest episodes and also help us ensure that we reach more people. We really hope you enjoy this episode. Lucy Ainsworth-Taylor is the co-founder of Blue Bolt, a leading independent visual effects studio based in London. This BAFTA-winning company was founded in 2009 and on starting up almost immediately landed the contract to provide the effects for Game of Thrones Season 1. Blue Bolt has since worked on films and TV series such as Peaky Blinders, The Night Manager, the entire series of The Last Kingdom and most recently Napoleon and a few other mega Hollywood shows. Lucy grew up in South Africa where she started her career as a production secretary before moving to the UK. Here she met the famous Duncan Heath, which provided her with the groundwork of understanding the UK film industry. In 2001, she became the head of new business and visual effects executive producer at MPC before setting up Blue Bolt. I can't wait to hear Lucy's stories of working in the visual effects industry and leading such a dynamic and renowned business. Lucy, welcome to the Media Careers Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to have you here. Lucy, you've had an incredible career. We've got so much to talk about today. But before we get started on this podcast, we have this great tradition of starting right at the beginning. And I'd love to know what you were like as a as a child and as a young person. Did you have any particular hobbies or were you academic? What kind of person were you? Oh, okay. So I'm the youngest of three and I have two older brothers who effectively just said to me, keep up from the word go. <laughs> so I was incredibly um, ambitious to keep up with them and, uh, and a real tomboy. Okay. Um, and I remember saying to my oldest brother once, you wait until I'm older than you and I'm better than you and I'll be able to do it. And then realizing about, you know, two years later, that was never going to happen. So I don't, I don't ever think it sort of died inside me. I think I sort of set out at a run and I've never stopped running since. Was I sporty? Yes, very sporty. Uh, we moved to South Africa when I was uh, seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. And the first thing we had to do was learn to swim quite quickly because the, the summers would get up to, you know, in their 40s and everyone had a swimming pool. It was almost like having a bath in your back garden. Yeah. Um, so I, jo I joined um, a swimming club and absolutely loved it. And within about two years from not being able to swim I was swimming into provincially for the region that we lived in oh wow and my poor father spent every weekend driving me to um galas all over the place but yes I always was a very very big sports person um sport was very um drummed into you in school in South Africa so you played tennis you played netball you played hockey you we uh, obviously swimming was my big thing but my brothers got very into horse riding um so they had horses and were very, very good at show jumping. So I got a little bit jealous and, and was given a little pony, which I used to hack around on. But it was never something that was a huge passion of mine, even though I used to actually go and sleep in its stable because I loved it so much. Oh, bless but you. it's funny, all those things, all those sporty, sporty things really sort of give you the go and they, and they give you the real courage to do so much else in life, I think. So I think it was an incredible grounding to have and we were very privileged. 
Yeah, it's, I agree that having having activities outside of school, it does, it provides you with a whole lot, a whole lot of skill sets, doesn't it, that you don't really realise that you're learning until a, a lot older. Yes, you know? um, and I think it makes you competitive and I think it makes you very, um, uh, you know, you, you, you know you've got to do the training that goes with you, so it makes you very disciplined. Yeah. Um, and, and, I've, and I've heard in uh, actually over life that many entrepreneurs in life actually have all come from quite a sporty background. So my business partner who I set up Bluebot with was a ballet dancer and you know we all had it very ingrained in us you know you trained you competed you did it and you and you obviously always wanted to come out as best you could and i think as, as a child it's such a great grounding mm, yeah that's amazing that, and really interesting that you both had that you both had that kind of discipline yeah. determination as you say competitiveness as well but that's yeah fascinating that you both had that kind of background um and what about academic uh, yeah, academically, Lucy, were you academic or did the studies kind of go to the side and amongst all the sporting stuff you were doing? Um, I wouldn't say I'm an academic. I think I was incredibly lazy at school and it was purely because um, I'm, I'm certainly not stupid, but if it didn't interest me, I completely dialed out. I I'm not linguistic in any way. And when we moved to South Africa, I had to start learning Afrikaans as a second language. And even to this day, I'm absolutely useless and I can barely understand it. But you you had to do it as, as part of your curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed maths and I really enjoyed geography because I had really fascinating, interesting teachers who, who made it interesting. You got to choose your subjects quite young in the schooling system in South Africa. So I unfortunately never did history beyond the age of 14. So my knowledge of history was only ever the Boer War and Battle of Blood River and whatever happened in South Africa. But I obviously went on and did art and geography and various other areas. But no, history was the, my one big regret. So later on, yeah, as you'll see in my career, it's, be, it's become my big passion. Yeah, that's really interesting because I had the same thing. I didn't study history after a similar age, yeah, 14, I think as well. And it's one of my regrets too, because I feel as though I've got this huge gap in my knowledge. But um, anyway, that's a whole different, <laughs> different subject. <laughs> And Lucy, what about the media industry? Had it like filtered on on your radar when you were a young person? Did you know about it? Had Not you... at all. So my grandfather on my mother's side was an actor and, and he was in Upstairs, Downstairs. He was in, the, in, in plays in the West End. They were in the original cast of The Mousetrap. Wow. So when we were really young and before we emigrated, um, we used to go up and, and see him maybe doing a pantomime and we would be able to go backstage. And, and I was always fascinated by you know him in the makeup room and the backstage of a theater but it never dawned on me that 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 it was a career you could do so sort of mm. shut it away and didn't think much of it but no um no it was my first film ever was Greece when I was about 11 and I remember <laughs> sitting in the cinema in the middle of nowhere in sort of a, a town called Bloemfontein absolutely struck by this exciting thing happening in front of me but again never dawned on me it would be something I would be involved in it just felt too big and too untouchable and and I don't think you really think about your career at 11 you're just worried about whether you can keep up with your brother who's going to probably slap you really hard if you don't hand your popcorn over <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> and what about exams how does the African academic system work how okay, well well, I'm, I'm quite old and tired now, but when I was there, you, you, you went through to matric and matric, you, you generally matriculated at the, around the age of 17 or 18, depending on what time of year you started school. Okay. And a matric, I believe, is very much in between your A's and your O levels. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when I got to matric, I then promptly went and got tick bite fever. 
and um, didn't sit half of my final exams. So I got a national aggregate, which was pretty low. And the school turned around and said to me, because I was at a state school, and they said, if you want to improve on these, you need to resit the year. And I was not a chance. Am I going to stay at school for another year? No, I've done that. So, been there. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm going to go out into the world. I'm absolutely not doing that. So I certainly didn't have the qualifications to go to university. I didn't want to go to university because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my father had been a very, very clever man who'd gone to Cambridge and come out um, with an economics degree and, and had never enjoyed it. He'd been sort of pushed into doing the wrong thing. So he was just like, look, just go with your gut. What do you want to do? And I was I really haven't got a clue what I want to do. And that's when my mother turned around and said, right, you're going to learn to type. And I nearly had a heart attack. I was like, I'm not going to be a secretary. <laughs> and she said, I don't care. She said, you've got to have some skills. And at the moment, you've got no skills. So you're going into this, um, ex- onto this executive secretarial course for a year. Um, do it. And you're going to do it with, you know, some other people that they, you know, a whole lot of teenagers at the same time. And, and I went off and I, and I learned to, for my sins, type and do uh, speed writing, of which we don't need any of that anymore. And we touched typing on a typewriter because the computers were not <laughs> out then. It's God, really, really funny how the world has changed. And while I was at this college, probably spending more time in the coffee shop called Crumbs that was just over the road, perfecting <laughs> my smoke rings, um, <laughs> I heard there was a great flurry of excitement. These girls came running and going, oh, my God, this is so exciting. A film director has phoned up the college and he's looking for an assistant. And I sort of sat bolt upright thinking, oh, that would appeal to me. And I remember getting going straight back to the college and um, going into the head uh, ladies, I assume she must have been a headmistress or whatever she would have been at the time, and saying to her, there's a job that's come in and I really think I'm, I'm the one to take, take that interview. And I remember her looking at me going, actually, yes, but only on one condition. And I said, yes. She said, you have to wear high heels and a skirt because you're representing the college. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't even know how to walk in heels and I don't, I've never owned a skirt. So promptly got taken off to buy these and, and went for the interview. You'll laugh at this, Kerry. I had to hold on to the walls to get into the office because I didn't know how to walk in these shoes. And I sat down and they were all looking at me most strange, as you can imagine. They're all in jeans and trainers, really scruffy. There's no formality in a, in a film production office. I did this and I said, well, you know, obviously I had nothing to show apart from the fact that this was me and my personality. And, and the most important thing they said to me is, can you drive? And I was like, well, you know, of course I can drive. And I got the job and they said, yeah, we'd love you to start. Can you, can you start straight away? And I went, yes, no problem, thinking I don't need to finish that college course. And they said, do you have any questions? And I said, do I have to wear a skirt? <laughs> I promise you, Lucy, in this industry, never. Now, this is interesting. And I started, on, I started working as the director's assistant on a film probably two weeks later and um, didn't finish my course. And off I went. That's extraordinary, Lucy. Oh, there's so many things in there. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? Had your mum not said to you, you've got to go do this course, had you not done that, then you wouldn't have heard about the job. There's so many like sliding moments in that. Absolutely. Cool moment. Just the basic skills, because you, you, you'll hear later on, it became so essential to be able to type, because you, mm. you, you could pick up a job anyway. You could go and temp, you could do all these things, because it allowed you to do that. I mean, I've never been very good, and my spelling is appalling. I'm, I think I'm actually dyslexic anyway. But no, it, it, it was the best thing I could ever, ever have done. But people look down on it, and, and in hindsight, I think don't. Yeah. yeah don't yeah such a key skill isn't it and then of course grabbing the opportunity and then interesting that you knew immediately that this that was for you that that something obviously clicked and you went oh yeah 
yeah, that, that's that's me apart from the skirt yeah. and high heels, obviously. Exactly, exactly. And then and then I started on my very first film, and you know, as a director's PA, you're doing a lot of stuff. You're driving around. I would pick him up in the morning. I'd make sure his dogs got to the vet. I'd make sure that he was on set and he got the latest script rewrites. I'd be running between the production office and him. I'd be chatting to all the crew because there is so much downtime on my film set. You're watching paint dry half the time, mm. uh, and it was just the 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 amazing people that the you know it was even I, I just got excited about tripping over the 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 the, the, the sparks uh, wires going onto set with all the lamps and everything and I just I could not believe that I had landed a job that was paying me to have so much fun and I thought this is unbelievable I need to carry on doing this he was such a gent the director as well and and a, and a, and, a, and I would love to find him one day and I can't remember his surname but his first name was Duncan and. And Duncan's have a certain big part in my life when they hire me. But um, <laughs> after him, I got a job then working for the producers of that film as their PA oh, um, okay. on the next film. And I remember sitting literally, there was no computers, uh, typing scripts day after day and rewrites and typing and typing and typing. So again, essential, essential for what I was doing. And, and, and a really good route to get into the, you know, the industry was as you know, a, a PA, a typist, a production secretary. Mm -hmm. so, Film three was as a production secretary, as was film four, five, and six. Mm. Um, and, and Lucy, did you at this point were you like, oh, this this industry is for me? Like I'm, I found I found what I've been looking for, and I want I want to continue working in the industry. To be honest, Carrie, I think it was more the fact that I was having such fun, yeah, and I was getting paid for it. Yeah, and every film was a new crew, yeah, and every film was a new subject matter, and every film was new locations. So every time you would start again, you'd start a whole new brand new production office in a different place. You'd have different crew across the board. So you were constantly meeting new people, doing different, you know, films over different periods and things. And I think what I loved about it was I was young. I didn't have any debt. I didn't have any mortgage. I was still living at home. I was earning pretty good money because you get paid well for those freelance jobs because of the hours that you put in and you never know when your next job's going to come along. So, you know, up until the time I was 21, when I finally left South Africa, I knew it was a career I definitely wanted to pursue because by that stage, by about film six, I was had stepped into being a production coordinator, which if you speak to anyone in the film industry is probably the very, very worst, worst job anyone does because you are just organizing everything, which I love. And that is my, I have the skills of organization beyond anybody I know to the detriment of any holiday that gets planned with anyone I take over. Um, <laughs> I'm a complete control freak and I love to have everything in order. Yeah. And, and as a production coordinator, that is your role. You are ordering all the equipment, you're sorting out all, well, when I was doing, we were doing all the contracts for the crew, all the contracts for the cast, the catering, you're helping with the location contracts. So you were very involved with every member of the crew and you'd spend you know, these sort of six to eight to 10 weeks setting up a film You'd literally walk into a blank office and create this massive production office and hire in all the machines that were needed. And then you do the shoot and you turn up on set on day one thinking, oh, my God, you know, I've, we, we've helped put this whole shoot together. Then you deal with all the hell of the show as it goes on and the problems that come up. And then you wrap it all up and you go home and you yeah. start again a couple of weeks later, different place, different crew. And, and I just love that. I, I'm, I'm not one for staying in the same place for very long. And I, and I just loved the diversity that you got of the jobs, the people, the locations. You, you can't get that in any job. It's, it's incredible to be able to do that. 
Yeah, and just all those, as you said, all those people that you're meeting, building your network, and yeah. and working in films is exciting, right? Like it's so no other environment. Yeah, so exciting. So exciting, and it, and and it never, you know, it never left me. Probably until about five years ago, I still got excited going on a recce and running onto a film set, <laughs> tripping over that same bloody wire, and, uh, <laughs> shouting at you know whatever it was. You need batteries running to the clapper loader and kind of just knowing a film set inside out. And 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 I, it has been for me the most incredible career and I couldn't recommend it high enough to anyone who wants that and an exciting life yeah yeah it, it's it is incredible and yeah. Lucy, what what made you then decide to move to the UK at what, 21 what, what was the because obviously you were building your career absolutely absolutely but, but there was obviously something you were like okay I need to I, need to I tell you what it was my uh, my eldest brother had had um had left and he'd come to London and I felt I felt our whole family had slightly been torn apart because, you know, we weren't all in one place. But uh -huh. it's also that thing of growing up and realising we are all going our own way. Mm. So I, in one way, I wanted to come to London to just check he was OK. And, and I had him here and it was a very good place to get to. But the second thing, I'd been speaking to a lot of crew in South Africa and I'd said, I'm going to go to England and try my luck. And every single one of them had said, not a chance. There's no way you'll break in. Oh, no way. Really? Yeah, yeah. You'll be back with a tail between your legs. Um, and I thought, well, it's really odd that everyone's so negative about this. And I went, nope, I am going to go to London and I'm going to work for the BBC. Ah, why were they so negative, Lucy? What was it? Because it felt just too... No, because no, it's such, it was such a closed shop in the early 90s. Yeah. You couldn't get into this industry unless your great-grandfather had been in it. It was all who you know, how you got in through the back door. There was you, you couldn't get through. You had to have equity cards. I mean, it was incredibly difficult. Yeah. And for some reason, I thought, no, I'm going to crack this. And I, <laughs> I love that. I think that, but <laughs> it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. So I got on a plane. I had a year's op uh, an open return ticket for a year. Right. Landed and thought, oh shit, I've got no money. Um, I, I've got to start earning. So, funnily enough, started temping mm -hmm. off the back of my typing skills. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you the trouble I had with that because I had a very, very strong South African accent. It was the peak of apartheid. Ma Nelson Mandela was just literally coming out of um, prison when I left South Africa. Mm -hmm. So, any job I went into, people used to just, you know, the, it was really odd. And you know what the British press are like. I mean, we were just the scum of the earth to everyone over here. And and it was hard. It was very, very hard. But, you know, just kept at it, earned a little bit of money, went traveling, came back, applied for every single job that had media in the title, mm -hmm. every single job, even got as far as um, a, a job at the BBC as a production secretary, but I failed my spelling test. And my, I had literally one, four weeks left on my return ticket. And I thought, I, said, I, was, I was coming back from a temp job. I think another one I'd been chucked out of. And I thought, oh, I think I'm going to have to go back with my tail between my legs. Oh. And I saw an advert in a newspaper saying, you know, PA for the chairman of a film company. So I circled it, got home, uh, got my uh, brother's fax machine to work, faxed off my CV to Office Angels because they were representing it. Mm -hmm. and sat back and thought you know if I get an interview great if I don't I really I really have tried my hardest I got a phone call the next day saying that they'd love to meet you um you need to meet an assistant of an assistant before on Friday and then and then we take it from there and I went in and I had an interview and it was in Wardour Street and the excitement of walking up Wardour Street in mm -hmm. 1991 I mean you had rank and you had 
Pathé. I mean, they were all there. It was just like the film street of London. Yeah. And for a girl from, you know, South Africa, this was so, so exciting. And I went into this hovel in office. I mean, it was small, pokey, tired. And I went into reception and these dogs came running at me. And, and I'm lucky because I grew up with 10 dogs and horses and everything. So I love animals. Um, and I was put into a little back room where these dogs jumped all over me, which is quite sweet. And then a, and a very... Um, one of the right-hand people to Duncan came in and said, you know, this is the job. This is who he is. He's an agent. And I looked at him and I thought, I don't know what an agent does. I mean, that's how ignorant I was. <laughs> and he said, listen, you've got all the right qualifications. You've got to go and do your homework on who he, who he is before you meet him next week. And I thought it was very odd. <laughs> so I went off that weekend and stayed with some um, some great family friends. And I said, have any of you heard of someone called Duncan Heath? And one of the daughters of of my sister and my best friend basically said, Oh, you don't want to work for him. He's really hard work. <laughs> I thought, right. I definitely want the job. <laughs> I am really red rag triple. So on Monday um, I phoned up and I said, yes, I'd really like to meet him. And I met him and he just thought I was fantastic. Not only did I do the interview with both of his dogs on my lap. So I couldn't <laughs> actually see beyond these dogs licking my face. You know what I mean? But the fact that he had a cousin that lived in Pretoria. So he loved the, this strong South African accent was just the best thing he'd heard in a long time. He was hilarious. And I worked for him for 18 months and he was without a doubt, a huge pinnacle in, in me getting an introduction to the film industry in England and television. I mean, you know, he had a lot of very well-known television actors. We looked after writers, he looked after directors. And it was just an incredible baptism of fire into actually more of how the Hollywood system worked. Yeah. And again, you know, my organizational skills, the problem that I didn't mind working sometimes, you know, 18 hours a day, we'd, we'd sometimes be there all night trying to get deals together. You know, we were looking after everyone and anyone. I mean, we had everyone on the books from Gary Oldman and Uma Thurman right through to even representing the likes of anyone like David Bowie or Mick Jagger, if they were to appear in film and television. It was such, such an exciting place to be. It must have been. It sounds completely quirky and yeah. dynamic and fun and challenging and yeah. and just what an amazing opportunity. And with only four weeks to go left on your ticket exactly. back to South Africa. Exactly. So he said to me, stay. Stay, you start with me in January, and I remember staying, and he was so sweet. I remember him probably about the following year. He he literally came in, and he just put a wad of cash on the table in front of me, and he said, buy yourself a ticket home. I want you to go home for Christmas. Oh, wow. I mean, and I always remember, and you never forget things like that, and you think, yeah. I, hope, I hope I'm in a position that I can always be as kind and as generous to people, like people have been to help me move through yeah, my Yeah, wow, that, that's incredibly generous. What a what a kind thing to do. And and but I have to ask that, Lucy, was he as difficult as everybody said that he was? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. He he was hilarious. He, he he came in one day and he said, I bought myself a Harley Davidson. I went, OK. And he said, um, but the problem is, and I went, yes. He said, I had my, I had my, he, he used to go around and sort of like brown satchel on the back. And he had, a, I mean, we had got a, a script for Gary Oldman coming, highly, highly confidential. He put it in his, satchel or whatever behind him in the Harley Davidson, driven through Hyde Park, got to the office and couldn't understand why the satchel had fallen off. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, it was things like that where I'd have to sit, she'd go all the way through the park trying to find a, a briefcase that had this hugely confidential <laughs> script in it. Um, and then he, he had the most fabulous sports cars and he used, to, I literally had an account with the, the wheel declamping unit because he used to just say to me, oh, the, I think the car's somewhere in Earl's Court. <laughs> 
down cars and <laughs> but part of the job was not only was dealing with the whole work side of things. I got to, I got to look after his dogs when he went to Los Angeles a lot of the time. And and for me being you know I, I was a year away from home and yeah. and it was just it was it was a perfect stepping stone for me to get in and to understand everything. And mm. and I and I'm and I'm very privileged to work for someone like that because I think those kind of characters do not exist anymore. And I don't actually think they can get away with being the way they were and the way we all worked many years. Yeah, ago. Lucy. So. What, so then how did you then start to move on from Duncan's office? What was the next step for you in, in okay. the industry? Then, then I, I sort of had done a year and a half for him and he, he was basically, you know, I said, I don't want to do this anymore because <laughs> I think I'd picked, I'd, I'd unclamped his car probably about 75 times by now. I thought, this is <laughs> and he said to me, what do you think you want to do? He said, I said, oh, maybe I should try Los Angeles. And they were fantastic. And they sort of said, well, maybe we can set you up as um, at ICM in Los Angeles as an agent. And I remember thinking, actually, I don't think I want to be an agent. I think if anything, I would like to be a producer. So I said, no, I want to go back into production. I want to, I want to go actually work for the BBC because that's why I came here. <laughs> and off the back of that, he, uh, our client was B-Ban Kidron, uh, <laughs> who, who was, you know, a, a very up and coming director at the time. She'd done Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. And I remember writing to her saying, B-Ban, do you need an assistant on the film you're about to do at the BBC, which is called Great Moments and Expectations, or Great Great Expectations, something like that. It wasn't a Dickens one, but it was a film along those titles. And um, she said, yes, I'd love it. And that was my route into the BBC. Backdoor, completely no, no spelling test, no typing test. Um, <laughs> and I went in as her assistant on a film. And I was fascinated with the way the BBC worked. It was everything that you don't do in a film in, 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 in the industry outside. They didn't have anyone in a production office. They had a PA system that the PA would run the production office and then that PA would be, go on to set and become the continuity. And then, they, and then they put a whole Bible together of what was going to happen during the shoot and off they went. So if things changed, I don't know who it was who managed to flip and change it all and get it all back in track, but it was a very different system. And I remember saying to them, after I'd done this film for B-Band, I was a production coordinator in my years before. Why, why isn't this something that happens? And and they listened to me and I brought coordinating into the BBC. You do. And I ran courses and, and we got it up and running. And it was definitely a different way of them approaching because, you know, they were just very, very behind the times, which I was fascinated by because I kept thinking, you're the great BBC that I packed my bags for to come and work for. <laughs> um, and you know what was so amazing? We were based at BBC Television Centre. I was freelance, so or contract. I did. I wasn't a permanent staff member. And there was a donut, which is still there, which is where they do the Graham Norton show and things like that now. And I think there's even um, a Soho house there. But you know, the third floor of the donut was series. The fourth floor was serials, and the fifth floor was films. So right. I was based on the fifth floor, and it was a circle, and you could literally walk around the corridor and go around on yourself. And every single office on that fifth floor had some incredibly well-known director, whether it was a John Schlesinger or whoever it might have been in there making these incredible BBC films. And, and that is where Harvey Weinstein picked a lot of his films up from. And I remember working with some of the most amazing film directors there and, and crews would all talk to each other and weave in and out of offices. And it was a real community. And then, you know, it was all the time when things then changed at the BBC and suddenly this thing called Producers' Choice came in and it mean, meant producers could then start using people from the outside and not use BBC staff. So it was a real time of change in there. But it was such an exciting place to be and an incredible springboard of, of meeting many more people. And, and, and just, you know, I, I was at the BBC for just over three and a half years 
and then I decided, okay, it's time for me to really take a, you know, a, a, a big step out of here. And I, and I took a job as a production coordinator on a film that was went and shot in Pakistan. Oh, wow. <laughs> five, I think I was there for five months. And we did a film on Jinnah, who was the founder of Pakistan when Gandhi got India, Jinnah got Pakistan, when mm -hmm. the divide happened. And Christopher Lee was our lead actor. And uh, we had a lot of problems because Christopher Lee was renowned and known for being Dracula. So it was, <laughs> we had the um, Pakistani press in our office every day. They were absolutely furious by the choice of casting of him. Um, but, you know, we had Edward Fox, we had Mariah Aitken. I mean, it was an incredibly strong cast. And, and I don't, I think the film wasn't too bad, but it never really came out. But again, that was my, my foray into being a freelance production coordinator. Mm. And I did that. And then as I was a coordinator on over 30 films, I think, in the end. Wow. And then in my 30s, I was stepping into being, I was a production manager. Then I became a production manager. And then I was stepping into being a line producer. Mm -hmm. And I was on a film down in uh, Spain, a uh, Paul McGuigan film called Blank. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We can look it up. <laughs> it was called The Reckoning with Willem Dafoe, Paul Bethany and Tom Hardy. Okay as a very young 19 year old <laughs> and we were down there and suddenly out of nowhere, this team of five appeared from the mill. And I sort of said to them on, it was, I think it was um, a Thursday afternoon. I said, can I help you? And they said, we're here from the mill. We're doing the visual effects. I said, the visual what? <laughs> visual effects. I said, what on earth is that? And they said, oh, well, basically in post, we're going to take your little village that you've built on this mine and we're going to put it onto a mountain in Wales. And I thought, what on earth are they talking about? <laughs> Well, I'm very happy for you. And they said, yes, but we need, we need your help. We, we need, um, we need an, uh, a shoot, an element shoot on Saturday. And I said, what's an element shoot? And they said, oh, well, basically we need to have, you know, smoke coming out of the chimneys and we need extras. We need the street to look like it's alive. And I was like, it's Thursday. You want Saturday? <laughs> I said, that's our day off. And they went, yes. And I was like, oh, okay. And I arranged it. And I think they were so blown away that I got the whole thing. Cause again, my, extraordinary efficient skills were like right let's get this together well and by that point lucy you'd had so much experience yes. dealing with challenges on film sets anyway and exactly. dealing with all of the craziness and the thing as you say the things that go wrong that actually it was probably no surprise that you were able to like make that happen exactly and, and the guy from the mill was a guy called martin hobbs he said it'd be really great to stay in touch and i thought why <laughs> I'm in production and you're in visual effects, whatever that is. And I thought nothing more of it. And three months later, Martin Hobbs called me up and he said, I've got a job for you. And I said to him, I'm not looking for one, but thank you. <laughs> no, no, no. Just come in and meet us and, and let, let's at least talk to you. And in I went to the moving picture company, the fanciest offices in Soho with the sky bar. I don't know if I went to the sky bar on the fifth floor. I mean, I've been working in Pinewood, which literally hadn't been touched for a hundred years. And I remember standing in the sky bar being handed this frothy cappuccino thinking, oh my goodness, this is quite nice. <laughs> and then Martin came up and he said, you know, we're looking for someone to become our head of new business. And I went, yes. And he said, I think you've got the right skills. And I went, I don't know what you do. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> he said, well, come and meet Michael Elson. And I said, fine. So I walked into an office with Michael Elson, who sort of swung around on his chair, kind of going, you're exactly what we're looking for. And I said, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they just said, look, we need someone who understands 
uh, it, it's more about your context. We need someone who knows who, who everyone in production is. We need someone who can just come in and help us raise our game. And we need to get into, you know, into more films that are happening in this country. And I thought, that's weird. I said, all right, uh, let me think about it. And I remember going away with some friends for the weekend again, going, what do you think? And they said, just take the job, Lucy, because if you don't like it after six months, you can walk out. But at least it means you're around at the weekends when we all want you to come and join us doing things. You know, you won't miss everyone's weddings because everyone was getting married. I thought, all right, I'll take the job. So I took the job. And that was when MPC had 12 people in the film department. Wow. And I remember literally sitting in their screening room day after day for sometimes an hour at a time watching uh the dailies and the rushes coming in and the shots that are going through no idea what i was looking at <laughs> a month after month after i think it took me three years before i really understood what was going on um, well there's no reason why you would though either because you hadn't had any experience of that bit of the industry so there was no reason why you would <laughs> no, but what what they did then realized was then if a, if a script came in i was the best to break it down because i knew exactly because i was i used to break down scripts and budget and schedule them for film so mm. i knew exactly how to break down a script and go that's practical that's not that is that's not that is that's not and of course it's all changed in the, in the last 20 years because so much more could be done in visual effects anyway I knew a lot of the directors. I knew how to run around a film set getting stuff done. So mm. I found my niche at MPC. Not only were we dealing with Hollywood and Dool, that was absolutely fine because they, they had more of a visual effects machine on these shows. But the smaller British films that were coming in were all just getting introduced to visual effects. And I could be a very good you know, middle person going, this is what we do. This is how we do it. This is what this is this is what you need to do with us on set. This is the cost. This is how it will work. And and I became very good at explaining that area to them. And what happened was we you know we we had a whole little section of small films that were coming in. And when we um, looked at it, you know, although the big big Harry Potters were now rolling through and they were huge and and NPC was growing and I was helping with the um, recruitment, because by the time I left, seven and a half years later, we'd gone from twelve to seven hundred. Whoa! <laughs> That's just a little bit of growth. <laughs> a little bit of growth. <laughs> it was just, and then it was starting to go global. Mm. And that's when I thought, I don't know who anyone is here. It's This isn't an industry I understand. This is more like a factory. And I had huge respect for what they were doing. And there were some seriously talented people. But I'd, I'd, the fire had gone out in my belly. And I remember going down and sitting with the, um, it was Mark, I think it was, it was Mark Benson at the time had, had taken over. And I just said, um, I'm sorry, I've got to go. That the, Just the fire's gone out in my belly. And he was just like, oh, you know, what can we do? And, and they'd been so good to me and they'd really looked after me. And, and I'd really understood and grown with the company. But you, you reach a, a glass ceiling wherever you are in life. Yeah. And did you know, Lucy, what you were going to go on to do? Or was it just like, actually, you just needed, just needed to go and then work it out from... Um, yeah. I don't... I'd been headhunted by the then prime focus and they wanted me to come in as head of new business there. And they'd offered me so much money. I've never seen my dollar signs. I was just like, oh, I'll take that. So <laughs> I went there and lasted three months because they uh, they then decided they were going to cut everyone's salaries. Because some, something, I think the writer's strike of 2008 had happened. Uh, okay. Everyone's salary. So I was on a fantastic salary for three months and then it all went. I thought it was too good to be true. <laughs> And I basically said to them, now I'm, I'm resigning, I'm out, I don't need to do this because the fire had gone out in my belly. Anyway, yeah. so I'd, only, I'd only followed the money. 
And they said, look, we've, we've, we've got you down to go to Cannes. You need to go to Cannes. You need to represent us. I said, but I've resigned. And they said, no, you need to go. And I went, fine. <laughs> so I went to Cannes and I was on a boat having a drink with the then film commissioner, Colin Brown, and Andy Weltman, who was working for the film commission then as well, an American. And both of them took me aside and said, what are you doing now? I said, don't know. I'm just having several glasses of rosé. I'm <laughs> having a lovely time. <laughs> a lovely time. But I'm, I'm probably going to leave because I've just had enough of the industry. And they both literally took me aside and went, nope, you have got to start your own company. Oh, wow. Did and they? I was like, what? Oh, really? And then, and then Andy had said to me, listen, have lunch with me in London when you get back. Let, let's at least talk about it. And we did. We had lunch the following week. And he said, I can't tell you how big it's going to get in this country and there's not going to be enough visual effects houses, start a company. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, I definitely started with Angela because we, we, you know, we were like, you know, partners in crime at MPC. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, and we probably need a really, really good 3D person to finish the triangle. And I thought the very best person I knew from MPC was a guy called Chaz Jarrett. Mm -hmm. So I asked them both to meet me in Patisserie Valerie for a coffee. And um, I sat down and I said to them, how about it? And they went and they giggled. And I said, why are you laughing? And they said, oh, because someone else has asked us to do this. And I went, oh, okay, don't worry, they're not. And they went, no, 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 but we'll, we'll stick with you. Later <laughs> did they. And they said to me, well, how are you going to do it? And I went, no idea. And, <laughs> it's an idea, that's it. Somebody it's an idea. It's it. an idea. <laughs> and they said, well, what do we need to do? And I whipped out my packet of Marlboro Lights, turned it over, and I said, right, so our business plan is <laughs> we each need to put £10,000 on the table. And they went, okay, and what does that do? And I said, not, not really sure at the moment, but um, we need to create a website yeah. and we need to find an office that we can call home. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll worry about the next bit. Did it feel right, Lucy? Did it feel, like, once it had been suggested to you, did it then start to go, oh, this is, this feels, no. this was right. No, it was just like you were going with it. <laughs> you know what, I was going to leave the industry, so I had nothing to lose. And I yeah. thought, I'll just borrow the money off my mortgage. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I honestly think Chaz just only thought this would be a bit of a laugh. And Angela Angela actually went and um was in the middle, I think, of taking redundancy at MPC. So we were all we'd all just sort of we'd gone through this massive growth at MPC and, and I think we were tired and we just needed a change. And I and I just said, look, even if we just do it for a year, it'll be fun. Yeah. I actually remember saying that. I said, What 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 have we got to lose? You know, we we, we won't lose much. And we set up our offices in the old offices of Pepper on Greek Street at the most ridiculously, ridiculous de deal that they'd done with me. <laughs> £60,000 a year for a room that was probably, oh, I don't know, 15 by 15. <laughs> and I thought, oh, how am I ever going to pay that? I said, well, I can't pay you for the first six months, so we have to defer it and then we'll pay you later down the line. And, and they said yes. And this is where all my organisational skills came back in. I was doing all these negotiations. And I remember sitting in the office and they said to them, right, what do we need? And they said, well, we need someone who's going to set up a pipeline for us. So we thought, oh, okay, well, uh, let's get hold of George Siddiqui, who we know, because he, he's ex-MPC, but he's a unit. We'll give him a call and take him out for lunch. So we did a – anyway, so he was our first salary. Okay. Which is very funny because um, when we um, – when I won an award, we had, we told this story. Our very first Christmas drinks, George had to buy them for us because none of us. <laughs> <had them. laughs> and, and literally, Lucy, had you got a client at this point? Was it just like getting the team in? No. <laughs> so we and we we arranged this all in June of two thousand and nine, and we said, right, we'll set up in September. 
because I think what we need to do is just going to get all our ducks in a row, get a website made. I want to go and have a bit of a holiday because I don't think I'm going to have one of those for a long time if we get going. <laughs> we set up in September and we announced ourselves to Soho by email and, and as as much as we could bang out the drum to everyone. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, okay, that's very clever. <laughs> yeah. And within a week, the phone rang and it was a lovely old uh, friend of ours, Tom Wood who was a supervisor from MPC who'd gone to work on Prince of Persia. And he said, I'll give you some shots. <laughs> we were like, oh, thank you. <laughs> so, you know, we, had, we bought like three machines and we were starting to buy a secondhand render farm that we bought from Egg and walked up the road with. And, um, and it was really amazing. He said to me, Lucy, you have to come into the production office and uh, first before we give you the job. And I was like, that's very odd. And I walked over to the production office and the director was a really wonderful man called Mike Newell. Mm-hmm. And Mike Newell was one of our best clients when I was working for Duncan Heath. Uh-huh. And I had persuaded him to do four weddings and a funeral. And I had this incredible history with him. And he just said, I'm so excited and I'm so excited. I'm going to give you your first show. And it was just it was just this amazing how everything had sort of turned back on itself. And, you know, you, you help someone somewhere and it'll come back and help you in the long run. Yeah. Um, we were we were working on Prince of Persia in the week two of Blue Bolt's uh, conception. Wow. And, and then we, Chaz was working on Sherlock Holmes, the first one with Guy Ritchie. Then we got a bit of work on that. Angela and I had no salary for the first two years. Mm-hmm. Um, as we started employing people, obviously, as the jobs are coming in, that's how we could pay for them. Yeah. And then awful to say it, but Pepper went bust. So we never had to pay for our rent, <laughs> which is awful to say. But they had done a ridiculous deal. So that served them right. Um, and then we moved into our offices in margaret street and then six months in i got this phone call from mark huffam who i'd known from you know a few shows we'd helped out on mpc when i was at mpc and he said um i've got a show for you from hbo and they're in town tomorrow morning at 8 30 um pull it out the bag i said pull what out of the bag what does that mean (laughs) he said show them how good you are and i said there's two of us, three of us and a Labrador. <laughs> um, I don't care. Pull it out the bag. Anyway, so luckily we had these very fancy offices with Pepper. The post-production producer came in to meet us. He thought the entire building was ours. <laughs> we got so we were, we were going to get friends and sit behind a whole lot of um, computers that weren't plugged in or even working, but they changed the meeting to 8 o'clock in the morning, so we got away with saying no one was at work yet. <laughs> Oh, was that your plan, just to get people to pretend they were doing some work? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> ready to con everyone. And um, I got a phone call sort of a week later from Holly Schiffer, who was the head of Post at the time, saying, um, we want we want you to visual effects produce the show for us. And I went, what? <laughs> I said, I've never done that before. And she said, yes, but you've done production stuff and, and you know how it all works, so you'll be fine. And I thought, okay. Um, she said, but you have to come to LA and meet us. Okay. And pretty much HBO did an FBI check on me. I mean, there wasn't a stone that they left unturned. They wanted to know how genuinely good I was at what I did. And I think my track record was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angela became one of the supervisors and Adam McInnes was the main supervisor. Um, and then I was on a plane to um, Ireland within uh, six weeks and on the show for a year. And in that time, flew back to London every weekend, helped someone. So I've got someone to help me um, start building the office. And we did this mass recruitment drive while we were doing Game of Thrones and filming. Um, wow. And we, I, I don't know, to be honest, if I sit here, how the hell we did it. 
No. It was brutal. It was, was absolutely brutal. It must have been absolutely not. <laughs> did it, did, Lucy, did it feel, did you, any of you feel like overwhelmed at that point where it was just like, how on earth are we going to do this? Or was it just so nuts? It was just like, keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. Really? I think it was so nuts. We never stopped to think about it. We no. Never, Angeline never, because Chaz was very, very hands off. He, he really wasn't very involved in the company. He was just a name that we'd brought in and he was very busy with his own career. Mm -hmm. um, we we never it was it was just so full on. I mean, we even had to open up a branch of Blue Bolt in Dublin so that HBO could get the tax break there, oh, which wow. meant I had to employ local people. I had to have lawyers and accountants and everyone in Dublin. And I and not only was I in Belfast for the first, I was there from April to December. Then from January to April, I had to live in Dublin. And yeah, we we grew. I mean, we only we only had twenty five people in the company to do season one. Um, wow unbelievable what we pulled out and the speed that it went at yeah. and none of us had done television at, uh, at that speed we had four months to post 10 hours of television that's I incredible mean, <laughs> it was i think i think when i look back at it afterwards i was like I, if that didn't break you it's only going to make you stronger and yeah well, well it did though right like from that it's gone on to achieve incredible things and worked that's on some and you know what, Kerry, it has been the most incredible, exciting ride. And it's all off the back of just pushing the boundaries and opening doors and letting and, and, and hiring the most incredible team. I mean, Blue Bolt now, I think we're because of the strikes, everything shrunk back a little bit. We were probably running at about 170, 180. We're back down to about 90. But the team that we have are so loyal and so fantastic. And it's just one big family. And we care. We really have always, always cared for everyone that's come in, and uh, and it's and you and we've looked after people. And if things haven't worked out, we've tried to look after people as well. But mm -hmm. we just went from one success to another, and then the awards started coming in, and we had no idea we were going to be Emmy nominated for Game of Thrones, and and even at the Emmys, everyone came up and said you should have won. But the way it works here, you'll win next year. And we thought we're not doing the next one. <laughs> 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 not doing any more of these and although it was the biggest show in the world we were just very honest with hbo and said it's too big for us you know yeah it's going way way too big and, and way out of our comfort zone you know we, we're we're effectively starting as an environment house and although we did your baby dragons it's just something that's just going to be too big and i think in some ways they were quite cross with us in other ways i think they were quite relieved to see the back of us <laughs> and, um, you know we then went on and we did some incredible television you when we did um, great expectations back in 2000 and i think it was 12 and we won our first bafta it was amazing because the guys on the BAFTA committee, we then subsequently worked with later on, and they said we'd never seen visual effects of that standard on British television. Mm -hmm. And you were suddenly the talking point of everyone. And you know what was so nice is we broke ground. We broke ground by taking what we had learned at NPC and putting it into television yeah. because there was no TV tax break and there was no massive high-end television. I mean, Game of Thrones was way before the tax break came in. Yeah. And, and, you know, we used to have to do British television a lot of the time for love. Peaky Blinders, we did for love. They had absolutely no money, but it was such a huge calling card when we went to LA. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's another phenomenal series, isn't it? That's yeah. just, yeah. you've been so successful. Yeah, and it just sort of, and, and we just, you know, and what's so great is there's a couple of companies in town. There's Union and they have an incredible run of people with really great British directors. And then there's one of us who had a really good run. And once they got into the crown, they took off at a gallop. And it's, and, and I have to say, television's been such a huge part of who we are as the mid-sized company area. 
And then obviously along came A, a fantastic tax break, but B, the streamers. You know, when you look at Netflix and Amazon and all of these streamers, they didn't exist six or seven years ago. No, like it's, it's changed. Whole, yeah, it's, it's changed the whole landscape. Mm. And does that, how does that um, impact your business model, Lucy, when you're just like, when you're looking at the streamers coming in, did, did you have to kind of rethink how you were working or how you were going to do business or did it just all evolve naturally it no it was it was one we we always treated a film or a tv show exactly the same not, not no one gets any different um you know level of artist or anything like that i think what we became very very clued up on quite quickly was the speed of television mm -hmm. so we knew that when we were doing tv shows we had to try and keep it as simple as possible yeah. you know if it if it called for a certain environment we really had to be as quick, you know, two and a half D, don't go 3D, 2D as much as you can do, get away from the 3D. Although in fairness now, things have, mu have changed much more that it makes much more sense in a lot of these things to go 3D, but it's, you're keeping up with how technology is changing, how software is changing and how your, your staff are, you know, evolving. So we've got an incredible, we had incredible head of 3D, Nick uh, Birmingham, who's now one of the creative directors of Blue Bolt, and an owner he came in and we poached him and poached him and poached him and he just basically said you're a startup i want to see you last <laughs> <laughs> now he's a part owner it's quite funny but he, <laughs> he's incredible he sort of has watched how everything's evolved and grown and he knows how to approach a show we have huge loyalty with our staff so you know exactly how we're going to get through shots quite quickly we know exactly when to you know speed things up slow things down and and there's just an incredible well-oiled machine now many many more people now than obviously when we started but mm -hmm. the whole functioning inside the r d the atds you know the, the technical directors and all that everyone it's just so well oiled that we can ramp up and ramp down as we need to and it's it's a it's a very different beast 14 years in now to when we started but it's been an incredible thing to watch and evolve with yeah what a journey it's just I know. it's so incredible from that kind of first conversation of you know oh you should start up a business to where blue bottle is now what a crazy brilliant journey you you, you and all of your founders and staff yeah. have been through so lucy what's next for blue bottle well in march this year we did a very subtle management buyout okay. we got three of our incredible team to come in and take it forward. So we've got Tracy McCreary, who's been with the company for about eight years. Mm -hmm. She's the managing director and uh, main owner. Mm -hmm. um, we've got Nick Birmingham, who was our head of 3D, has become the new creative director. Yeah. And the wonderful Henry Badgett, who's been with Blue Bot from, from conception. He came and did um, Game of Thrones with us. He is another creative director and an, and an exceptional supervisor. So those three are taking the company forward. Andrew and I have stepped aside from the day-to-day -day running. I'm still a bit like Mother Hawk, flying <laughs> overhead, watching, poking my beak in where I need to. And it's very much need be needed with the um, with the strikes coming up and, and sort of how we sort of slim down and, and ride through this very rough, bouncy time. But we're going to yeah. be fine and we're going to bounce back even bigger. Mm -hmm. So just making sure that they're ready and, and ready to run forward. But, you know, you've got to move aside. Like when I, when the... The fire in my belly ran out at MPC. I think it wasn't the, the the belly. The fire in my belly's never run out with Blue Bot. My energy levels have, yeah. and I think you could see that these new people were coming through, and they were 
uh, excited and they were enthusiastic and, uh, and energetic. And I thought, I don't have it in me anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. <laughs> so I'm going to take a year off, Kerry. I am going to go and put my feet up next year. Nice. I'm still going to keep a very beady eye on Blue Bolt's day-to-day, well, month-to-month <laughs> runnings because it's in very, very good hands. But I'm, I'm, I'm taking time out and... I don't know. Let's see what happens. I might pop up somewhere in another guise. Yeah, how lovely to be able to do that and to have that time, I think, because it sounds as though it's been so crazy that you probably haven't even had any time to reflect on what what you've achieved and the accomplishment that you've had at Blue Bolt. It's just been... Yeah wonderful to like yeah, see it's nice to talk to you about it and actually you go back over it and you think gosh what an incredible ride it's been but yeah. i think covid was very very hard on us and you know we we rode it through and we really got through it without any debt and we, and we had it, it's it's always been a very very well run company and then when this this came around sort of two years later you're like it's wow, been brutal hasn't it it's brutal it's absolutely brutal so but it's just i have the knowledge i can share it with them I can make sure that, you know, they've got mass support, 100% support, but they, they have taken the reins and it's exceptional what they're doing. So I'm very, very excited for Blue Bolt's future. Very excited. Yeah, incredible. Oh, Lucy, I could talk to you all day, but we're coming to the end of our podcast. But before we before we go, I've got I've got another few couple more questions for you. What what advice would you give to anybody that's looking to get a career in the visual effects industry? How do you how do you get into the into this bit of the film and TV industry? Well, I actually think it's a lot easier now than obviously when I was trying to get in. Mm. Um, You've got to find out what's going on. Uh, For me, the most important thing is just get into it. Don't don't go and, well, I have no qualifications. So I, I don't think the film industry, unless you want to be specifically a 2D artist or a 3D artist and you need those software skills, to be a production, a visual effects producer, you just need to have really good organizational skills. So it's more a thing of if the industry is for you, no matter what area of the industry, start doing your homework and start finding out how you can get the door, your foot in the door. Yeah. I also think it's a very, for me, a very important thing that you don't just specialize in one area. It's an industry you can move around in. Mm. Um, you know, I was very lucky to have a huge big production career and then into visual effects. But the two really go hand in hand because ultimately you're all making a film. And to make a film, it does take hundreds and hundreds of people across the board from pre-pre, early pre-production on the agency side, right through to the very end visual effects when you're sort of putting the final shots in. Mm-hmm. So the industry is so far and wide. How do you get in? Good point. You phone up the film studios, you find out the films that are going on. There are loads of crew agencies now that never existed before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's incredible skills, things like skill set and all these things. If you actually just go into the internet and start searching, you will find numbers to call. And then you've got to keep taking it forward and ask and ask and ask lots of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And my advice as well, Carrie, is get, get in at the bottom. Get mm. in at the bottom. Don't don't be don't be precious. Don't think you're going to come in and be an editor. Get yeah. in at the bottom. Make a good cup of tea or coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Be interested and ask lots and lots of questions. And if it doesn't interest you, don't stick around. For me, in life, you spend five sevenths of your week at work. In this industry, it can often be seven sevenths. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, get out because you'll drag down people down. And you won't do yourself any favors. It's just, you know, just go with your gut. Go with your gut. That's what I did. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. You've definitely gone with your gut throughout throughout your life. You, that kind of definitely resonates in the stories you've been telling today. And then, Lucy, finally, what do you think you've learned throughout your career about yourself and about the film and TV industry? Oh, what I've learned about myself is I think I'm a complete control freak. Um, <laughs> okay. There's no other way to put it. I'm a control freak. I'm a very fair control freak. And, you know, I think there were some other things you asked me is, Name the three things you love about yeah. the media. Yeah, tell me, what do you love? Okay, well, for me, it's number one, the extraordinary people you meet. Um, mm -hmm. I've had the opportunity to meet Helmut Newton, um, famous, famous, well-known film stars and music people. And I've even met Yasser Arafat. Yeah, incredible. You, you know, other industry allows you to do things like that. No. Uh, so I suppose it's not bad for a girl who just learned to type. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that, the travel, the travel that it brought me, I have been all over the world. I have been into places that you just can't get any access. You know, I did Long Walk to Freedom, which for me was a huge um, perk in life because I grew up in apartheid Africa. And we were in the Houses of Parliament. We were in Mandela's prison cells on Robben Island. And we were even in the house um, in Cape Town that he moved to afterwards. We got right in on the underbelly of what went on. And and for me, that was a real privilege to... Yeah, that must have been. That must have been super powerful. Yeah. And I suppose finally, because I never studied history at school, the architecture that we've created and the historical films that we've worked on where you've learned all about you know bletchley park and all the things that have happened in this incredible world that we live in with the history of the world you just like we we're very privileged to have been part of creating some of these incredible films and places that they were yeah yeah and and that those are then shared with the world right that yeah. you've yeah. created this incredible incredible amazing film or tv series that then is shared with yeah. With, yeah, with everybody and audiences around the globe. So yeah. what an yeah. incredible thing to be part of. Oh, well, Lucy, look, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's been an absolute joy. I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing your stories. And I'm sure, as you say, Blue Bolt's going to go on to continue to grow and thrive and bounce back from the recent strikes. And I'm sure you will go on to do amazing, exciting things too. So thank you, thank you so much. much. It's been really brilliant chatting to you. Thank you, Carrie. Take care.